Ideas have consequences, and consequences have ideas. If we don't learn how to think carefully, we will never be able to live rightly. So welcome to Think Through It, a podcast for conversation among friends encouraging one another to think through it. Well, I'm joined today by uh, a very incredible, special guest, Carl Truman. Carl, welcome to Atlanta. We, we gave you great weather to come down. Uh, how's, how's everything in, in Pennsylvania right now? How's the weather? I guess y'all are, it's, it's coming along, isn't it? I just checked my weather app and it's actually three degrees warmer in Pennsylvania wow. at this precise moment in time than it is in Atlanta. Okay. So well, weather's, weather's looking great in Western PA at the moment. I'm, I'm glad we could have some cool <laughs> weather down here for you too. Before yes, it, a bit it, more humid here. Yeah, yeah definitely. Uh, well, I'm, I'm so grateful uh, for you, for your scholarship, for your writing. Um, you know, I first became acquainted with you through John Owen, uh, who I want to talk about, but we're going to hold on to Owen um, until later. I, I wanted to talk to you today about um, something that you have helped me and I think so many think about is this idea, this frame of our culture that you have dubbed, and I know it's not original to you, but the, the, the term that you're using to describe it is the expressive individualism of, of our age and of the day. And I want to talk about how that um, has impacted our age and, and also just how that has framed all of us, like how that has become the river that all of us swim in, even as uh, confessing Christians, and, and maybe some of that is, is really good. Uh, and maybe some of that is is not good, and uh, so I want I want to jump in. So, just to kind of help us get on the same page here, when you talk about expressive individualism, what are you talking about? I mean, how could you kind of briefly encapsulate that? Yeah, good question. Expressive individualism is a term used to describe how we imagine ourselves to be and how we imagine ourselves to be relative to the world around us. And at the heart of expressive individualism is the idea that uh, you are your feelings, that it's that psychological right. space yeah. inside your head that determines who you are. So one great example of this would be, uh, say, sexual identity, that people now identify themselves as lesbian, gay, or straight, when we identify ourselves in those ways, what are we doing? We're saying that the one of the most fundamental aspects of who I am right. is my inner sexual desire. Now, you might say, well, isn't that the way that people have always thought? To which the answer is actually no. Uh, if you'd grown up, let's say, in the Middle Ages, in a village in the West Country of England, you would have defined yourself by external relations. You come from a certain village. You're the child of certain parents. I am. My last name is Dees because I am of the Dundees. There so, you are. Yeah. You come from from the, uh, the 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 east coast of Scotland, right? So your identity would have lain in external markers. Increasingly, over the last four or five hundred years, we have come to focus upon the I, the individual. And the individual de determined by the feelings that we have. And so I want to try to think about this theologically, though, because I don't think all of that is necessarily bad. I mean, the the, the thing that I have in my mind right now is uh, the movie Far and Away and the Nicole Kidman character 
is, you know, wanting to go to America. She's wanting to kind of break free of the identity that was totally external. Her family, um, even though it was a very privileged identity, she wanted to break free of that. I remember there was a, there's a scene where she's playing a song on the piano and she says, it's very modern, you know? And so some of that, it's hard for us even to think about as Americans because the American identity in so many ways is individualistic. So some of that is probably not all bad. I mean, and I think you would probably argue the same. I mean, in the sense the Reformation uh, gave the world this stream in some ways, how, how would you talk about how to discern what of that is right and maybe God-honoring, that impulse toward freedom that, that actually the Lord pushes us toward? And, and, and which of those impulses is, is wrong? And so how do you, I mean, and obviously that's a big question, but yeah. help us, give, give us some handholds there. Well, the two things that one could say about expressive individualism that, that highlight aspects of biblical truth. Well, first of all, we do have an inner space, and the inner space is important. If you read the Psalms, there's a lot of emotion in the Psalms. The psalmist uh, feels angry, he feels elated, uh, he feels desire, he feels despair. Right. Uh, that inner space is not invented in the last four or five hundred years. So the acknowledgement, or like confessions, or something like that. You know, yeah. Or so, Augustine's confessions is yeah. another good example. The acknowledgement of the reality and importance of psychology and psychological feelings that resonates with something one finds in the Bible. Secondly, the emphasis upon personal responsibility. Right. Is something one finds in the Bible as well. The New Testament is very clear that you need to repent, you need to believe, you need to trust, you need to love. So there's an individual emphasis there that's important as well. Where I think the, the line gets crossed is, is when that inner space, those inner desires, that personal responsibility is granted a kind of absolute authority. So if you look at the Psalms, take Psalm 88, for example, the bleakest of the Psalms. You have the psalmist there lamenting uh, about how bleak life is, how uh, ultimately you know, the psalm culminates in declaring that even his friends, even the Lord has even taken right. his friends far away from him. It's a very bleak psalm, but it begins with the psalmist calling on the covenant name of God. So all of the feelings that the psalmist expresses there are being expressed within the context of an acknowledgement of the external authority, reality of God, and God's dealings with his people. And if you look at the, what the Psalms do as a whole, is they, they operate on the basis that internal feelings are important, but are ultimately to be brought under the authority of God. They're to be understood, defined by shaped by that prior external authority. You mentioned the example of Augustine's Confessions. It's another good example of how there you have Augustine probing his inner psychology as he moves from paganism towards Christianity. And yet the whole of the Confessions is framed as a prayer to God. So every statement in the Confessions is self-consciously set under the external authority of God. Now, what we've seen in the last four or five hundred years is an increasing detachment of that inner space from any external authority. Most obvious example, extreme example today would be, say, transgenderism, where somebody says, you know, I'm born in the wrong body. Well, what are they doing there? In some ways, they're saying, my feelings 
collide or contradict my bodily constitution. So much the worse for my bodily constitution. Even the external authority of my own body yeah. is not to shape or to have a decisive and a determinative impact on how I understand my feelings. So that's, you know, expressive individualism does well, acknowledging the importance of the internal sphere, uh, acknowledging the importance of personal responsibility, but overplays its hand ultimately in becoming a very anti-external authority kind of way of imagining what it means to be human. So I'm curious, and I've asked some other people um, this question, and you may address it in uh, you know one of your books, and I just am not bringing it to mind right now. How do you define the age? Um, because to me, modernity... Uh, in so many ways, was you know a disenchantment, mm. but a, a a disenchantment with anything that was extra material or beyond the material yeah. world. And so, personally, and I and I you know I want to be taught here, I want to learn here, but I see modernity as this very materialistic kind of age. Um, and I'm saying materialistic not in a sense of going to the mall with your middle school girlfriends, but materialistic in the sense of only trusting the material realm uh, and not giving space for something beyond that, uh, which is obviously something so true to human beings. But but in this moment that we're in, and maybe this, and maybe you know, you argue this has actually been happening a lot longer. But again, transgenderism is such a um, it, you know, it, it's such a interesting moment, and it, it's such a rejection of even the authority of the material world. It's not just a rejection of yep. the supernatural world and revelation or something like that, which may have already gone out the yep. age, but now we're rejecting the visible created order or the visible evolved order even. Yep. You know, so how how do you describe kind of our current age? I mean, have we moved beyond modernity? Am I, am I framing modernity wrong in connecting it to materialism in that way? No, I think you're correct. And I think we do live in, 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 a, in a disenchanted world. But one of the aspects of disenchantment, I think, is the, the loss of any belief that the material world has any kind of intrinsic structure. That what has happened, I think, in modernity, or certainly in late modernity, though I think the, the tendency is there, is latent, uh, in, in earlier ages, what has happened is we've come to see the material world as raw material, kind of Play-Doh, or as a, a kind of Lego that is there to be dismantled and, and reassembled. Manipulated or, yeah, yeah, manipulated in whatever way helps us, makes us feel good. So the other aspect of modernity I think that's important is you know, we live in what I would call a therapeutic age. Once you lose a sense of the transcendent, once there is, once once you lose the belief that there is anything uh, greater than oneself to work for, what happens is we tend to focus upon feeling good in the here and now, or at least in the short term. Right, uh, and that's the the therapeutic age, whereby the world around we manipulate it in such a way that makes me feel comfortable and good about myself in the here and now. So again, hey, I'm born in the wrong body. I'll just have my body chopped up and reassembled well, in and a way that a, makes me feel good. That's a very interesting point uh, because even, and you know, we keep talking about transgender, but it's such a, 
it's such a clear and helpful and easy illustration of this. Um, I can't just feel like a woman trapped in a man's body. I have to create a material body that actually resembles yeah. uh, and something that I'm recognizing that is woman, yeah. you know, and, and that is fascinating because it, yeah, we, we haven't totally rejected material. We, we are using it, as you said, as a, as raw material, if you yeah. will. Yes, and you're also touching on another important aspect of expressive individualism there that, that I omitted to mention earlier, and that is the performative aspect of it. Yeah, The idea is that I can only be authentic if I'm able to present outwardly relative to how I feel inwardly, of which the transgender movement is the most extreme uh, example. But we see that throughout society, the way that, you know, think about the way profanity 50 years ago, Watergate, profanity, the use of profanity in private meetings was one of the things that really damaged President Nixon. Mm -hmm. Now you're hard-pressed to think of a politician right or left who doesn't routinely use profanity in their public statements. Well, what's the difference? Well, part of the difference is this. Everybody knows that everybody uses you know, worse language in private than they do in public, typically. So if you have a politician who never uses profanity in public, he sounds inauthentic. Right, yeah. yeah. Sounds as if he's playing a role that represents somebody that he isn't really. Whereas if you have a politician who's swearing and using profanity, hey, we're seeing the real man here. We're getting right. something authentic. Right, yeah. That's very fascinating. Okay, let me shift gears just a little bit, but I want to stay in this vein. Um, well, first of all, let me... I'm going to ask you to... Um, I know that you and I both have appreciated Charles Taylor and, and a lot of the framework that maybe he's given us. So you talk a lot about his idea of social imaginary. Yeah. For the person that maybe that's a new idea, give us a quick, yeah. Yeah. what are we talking about with that? Well, Charles Taylor uses this term social imaginary that's, uh, it has an obscure feeling to it because he uses the term imaginary which we typically use as an adjective. A unicorn is an imaginary creature. Right, right. Uh, he uses it as a noun. So it, it has this kind of awkward, inelegant feel to it. But essentially what he's getting at when he uses the term social imaginary, he's pointing to the fact that the way people think is generally not in a particularly reflective manner. That most of what we do in this world, most of the way we relate to the world around us, to the people around us, is not grounded in thinking back to first principles. Take, for example, um, uh, why is stealing wrong? Most of us would say well, it's it's just wrong. We've not read Immanuel Kant on ethics. Right. Yeah. We've not wrestled with consequentialism. The, we've not read the great tomes of ethical theory. We've just been brought up to assume that stealing is wrong. Well, why? In the movie, the crooks were the bad guys. I mean, yeah, it's so, yeah. some of it's story, some of it's just yeah. upbringing. Yeah. It's what your parents already... So when you think about it, an awful lot of the way we relate to the world is like that. And another trivial example, uh, I, 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 I know very little about particle physics, but I do know that leaving rooms through doorways rather than walls is the way to go. Right, right. Because, yeah. hey, doors work. There's an intuitive aspect my experience teaches me that um when you think about you know this gets a little bit more controversial perhaps 
because one would want to give a theological background to it ultimately. But think about belief in God. In the year 1300, pretty much everybody believed in God. It, everything in culture pointed you towards the importance of God's existence. Uh, today, the opposite holds. Right. It, today, we intuitively don't believe in God. Society teaches us atheism or agnosticism as normative through the movies we watch, the commercials we see, the conversations we have, the way we go about our daily business. So when Taylor points to the social imagery, what he's really getting at is if you want to know why people believe certain things and don't believe certain other things, you can't simply look at the important philosophical texts that are being written. You've got to look at how culture is shaped, right. how people live their lives, the rituals they perform, uh, the movies they watch. He's really arguing that we need a much more holistic approach to understanding why, the, why we think the way and, we do. And, and I think one of the helpful kind of ideas within the framework of social imaginary, and this is kind of where I want to go with this whole stream, and I'll bring it back to our first topic, uh, you know, the, the way that even we judge other cultures, mm. um, you know, like the, the debate over like Thomas Jefferson in, you know, obviously he was a slave owner, but the social imaginary that he came from within, you know, it's a very, we can't judge Jefferson from our current social imaginary. We, we have to understand wh where did he come from? Yeah. And, you know, the interesting about that, and I don't want to go down this road, but you know, he actually, in a sense, gave the world the principle that ultimately destroyed slavery. Yeah, that all men are created equal. So if you if you throw him out because he couldn't live up to that principle, you 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 have to throw out the thing, the actual the thing that we're now living by. Yeah. So anyway, where I want to go with all of that is as Christians in the 21st century, I think a we are impacted by our own current social imaginary more than we wish we would be. Um, I want to have an imaginary, a social imaginary that is framed by scripture, as we talked about before. I also think we live in an age that Christianity has impacted our current world more than the age would like to believe. And so, you know, I guess help, help us maneuver that. A, understanding the parts of our culture that Christianity has the, the tributary of Christianity has been a big part of. B, you know, the, the parts of, I guess, our own social imaginary that um, are far from the things of the Lord, and, and how do we reframe that? And I, and I, I think the simple answer is going to be a call back to Scripture. Um, but I'd love to hear just yeah. how, you've, how you've thought through that. Well, I think you're correct when you, when you were talking there about, I mean, I, you, you said, you know, Jefferson gave us these principles. I would say, of course, Jefferson himself is resting ultimately upon Christian principles. Uh, just for the record, totally. I, don't, I don't think Thomas Jefferson was a Trinitarian Christian. I think right, that, right, right. You know, that's a, it's an impossible case to make historically. But Jefferson emerged from a culture where certain Christian ideas had become common assumptions of the social imaginary. For example, all human beings are created equal. Well, where does that come from? It ultimately comes from the idea all human beings are made in the image of God. So uh, that, I think, is an important assumption. Uh, assumptions about justice, mercy, etc., etc. The the general virtue of that language. That's something that, at least in the West, is derived ultimately from 
Christianity of the Middle Ages. It becomes an important part of the of the social uh, imaginary. When you come now to say, well, how do we sort of recapture some of that in our contemporary culture? I think we need to move from the, the imaginary part of the social imaginary to the social part. One of the mm. big points Taylor is making is that uh, what constitutes knowledge, what constitutes morality, what constitutes the way we think about the world is derived in large part from the communities in which we find ourselves operating, that the imagination is shaped by communal practices. And there it brings us to, to the church. So, okay, how does the church recapture something of the Christian social imaginary, for want of a better term? And I think the church has to do that by realizing that the church is not simply a lecture theater that one goes to on a Sunday to hear a lecture. Or it's not simply a concert venue where one goes along to sing along with the band and have a good time to express oneself on a Sunday. The church is actually a community. It's not any old community. It's a community that has a specific creed. It has a set of beliefs that shape that community. And those beliefs are to be taught didactically through preaching. And they are to be absorbed communally through liturgical practices, through right. singing God's praise, and through communal practices during the week, hospitality, right, right. fellowship, etc., etc. So the church is not any old community, but the church has to be a strong community because the strongest elements of your social imaginary will derive from the strongest communities to which you belong. You and I are both fathers, for example. Uh, my identity as a father is far stronger than my identity as, a, as an employee of Grove City College. I've worked at various places in my professional career. I've only had one wife and I've only had one family. Right. That family community is a much more fundamental part of who I am than the person who pays my wages. They're important, but they're not as important. The church needs to be that fundamental community in the life of Christian believers in order to shape that social imaginary. Well, and I think that's a that's an interesting illustration that we can kind of keep using because I know a lot of men that their identity as, you know, the president of the company or this person or that person actually is, you, you never say this thing, you never, you never say these things because you know that this is not the right answer, yeah. but actually it's more important to them than their families right. and, and the way that they've treated their families. So I think that this gets back to the, this idea that the, that the church is this multifaceted, um, you know, the, and this is something that I think has given me trouble recently that a lot of people are saying, well, I have my church on Tuesday morning in my pajamas. Well, the, the church is not just listening to a podcast. I no. mean, the, the the church or reading a book or whatever i mean we we talk a lot about having convictions values and behaviors so the convictions things that i believe that be true about god is church frame the values things that it's not just a mental ascent but a, a heart ascent and then behaviors the the things the way that we work that out in community with one another but then the reverse is true those behaviors reinforce those values that then obviously reinforces the convictions. Mm -hmm. And so it's the same thing with the family is a great illustration. The reason that that is a more important sense of identity for you is because it, there, there is, there are behaviors around being a good husband, yeah. being a good dad, 
that actually are stronger than even your who you are as a professor or whatever else you're doing. And so I do think that that church community, if we, if we want to change, it's kind of like if we want to change the mind, we, we have to change the communal behavior. Yeah. Uh, and that's, I guess, the social part of the social imaginary. Right? Yeah, I mean, it's a, you know, I don't want people to switch off at this point, but there's an interesting uh, concept in Marxist theory. The just, t- just, just go double speed during this time <laughs> if you're getting bored, guys. Yeah, okay. But a lot of Marxist critical theorists will talk about what they call the totality. And what they mean by that is that, that you can't chop up a way of life into different discrete bits. That We might put it this way, there's an ecology to life yes, yes. where a change in one area will have involved changes in other areas. And we need to make sure that the ecology of our lives is a Christian ecology. Yes, And that means that everything plays its role. And Paul sort of points to this in some ways when he talks. You know, Paul is very clear that the sin of one member of the church has an impact on other members of That's the right. church. Yeah. That no man is isolated. If there's somebody in your congregation secretly committing adultery, that will have an effect on the whole. And I think we need to think very much in those terms and realize, you know, my my Christian life in church is ultimately not separable from yeah. my family life. Sin my life is all. In a yeah. Sense, yeah. yeah, there is a totality to life that yeah. means... You know, my temptation as a, as, a, as a Presbyterian Protestant is always to prioritize orthodox doctrine over everything else. But there's a sense in which, well, orthodox doctrine is important. It cannot be isolated from other aspects. You know, believing that Jesus is Lord and going home and beating my wife right. raises questions about whether I truly believe Jesus is Lord at that point. That's right. Uh, well, and, and one of the things that I think, just to go back to the idea of kind of the social imaginary moment of our age, and yeah, I know like Leslie Newbigin talks a lot about this, the, the, um, the Enlightenment world wants to have, we'll just call it religion, as a part of it, but it's private, it's personal, yeah. and it only exists really to serve who you are out here in the real world, yeah. right? And so if, if, if your little church service, you know, makes you a harder worker yeah, uh, or whatever, or have better values or something. Um, I mean, there's a church in our area that says, you know, we want to help you make better decisions. Like yeah. that's the point of the yeah. thing. And so that church, I think unknowingly has totally bought into, yeah. you know, the enlightenment. I mean, they've totally bought into David Hume. I mean, and yeah. so, um, and so how do we, uh, I, I mean, I, I think that it is, it's almost, in a sense, we're so used to that social imaginary that it's almost, it's almost kind of a weird thing to believe. No, Jesus is actually Lord of the entire yeah. universe, yeah. and to live that out in all yeah. aspects. Yeah. Um, I don't know if there's a question in there, or just a well. Well, I, I, I think there is, and I think the big part of the answer is we we need to think about the worship service a lot. Now, typically, when you start t- talking about, you know, we need to think about the worship service. The mind goes straight to, you know, contemporary versus traditional, drums versus unaccompanied psalm singing, all of the sort of technical kind of questions that are, that are important questions to address. But I'd want to say we need to think about the worship service in terms of uh, incrementally shaping the Christian imagination. And the worship service should therefore shape, incrementally shape the Christian imagination in ways that the New Testament wants 
the imagination shapes. And I'm very struck by Paul talking in Colossians, you know, focus upon things that are above. Mm-hmm. And Paul is yeah. very heavenly minded in a lot of what he teaches. And when you think about that, that's not just the sermons that are preached. It's also the songs that are sung, the prayers that are offered. And, you know, that, that, that hardest of things to, to articulate, the ethos of the church itself. I think we should not underestimate the importance of the worship service as that which shapes the imagination. What's interesting about the shaping of the mind and the imagination, of course, is in general, it's always an incremental thing. I, I use this example with the students. I, you know, I, I, I did classic. I, did, I went to a very traditional English boys' school. I did Latin from the age of 11. I did classics at university. I can you know, do a fair, decent job of, of reading Latin now. I can remember almost no Latin class I ever attended. And the only classes I remember are the ones where somebody did a prank or something. It was not the right, teaching yeah, of the Latin. Yeah, yeah. It was something else that happened in the class. And yet I must have been there because I can read Latin. My mind was incrementally trained That's a great to read Latin yeah. over a long period of time. You know, occasionally you'll meet Christians who I suppose understandably get worried that they can't really remember sermons. And I was joking, I'm a preacher and I can barely remember 5% of the sermons I've preached. Like yourself, maybe Jason, you got asked, you know, what do you think this passage means? And you might respond, well, I preached on that three years ago. Let me go and look I at need my to go notes. Back and reread my Let sermon. me go and look at my yeah. notes and see what I think about it. There's an incremental, an invisible incremental transformation that the Holy Spirit brings about through a properly ordered worship service takes place over months and years that slowly but surely shapes the Christian social imaginary, should we say. And that's how society, you know, the yeah. social imaginary is not something we're that's taught. So, that's so helpful. It's something we imbibe without even knowing it. And and I think the the revival maybe movements of America, and not that those were bad or whatever, but just we, we adopted this, man, this one experience changed right. my life, which can happen, yeah. obviously. Praise God, that yeah, can happen. Yes, but so much of Christian growth is like a tree growing. And, yeah. you know, it's like, I can't tell the difference between this tree yesterday and today, but yeah. I know that it must be growing because it's bigger than it was a year ago. Yeah. Yeah, and uh, I and 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 I think Christians having the patience, and really that is kind of a countercultural idea too. Christians having the patience to believe in those things and trust in those things, yeah. and not buy into the populism of wanting a, you know, wanting to ha- have that. You know, yeah. we we, yeah. we always joke around about there's a movement in Christian youth ministries, disciple now, you know, disciple now, and I think disciple nows are wonderful things, but. It's like the, the name is bad. You know, yeah. you can't disciple now. It's not like it's yeah. this explosive thing and now discipleship is done. Yeah. Parenting yeah. is the same yeah. way, you know. Yeah. Um, and when you think about, so, you know, I, I don't know you well, but, you know, most Christians have been through periods of suffering in their life. Yeah. When you think about periods of suffering, they're generally not moments where there's a crisis experience and you're utterly transformed. Right. Suffering transforms you in a slow, painful way. But when you look back on it, you think, yeah, I'm a fundamentally different person now to the one I was before the suffering started. And I think that is a, a motif of the Christian life. We are changed. It's like parenting. You can attend, you can read books on parenting. You can attend a parenting course. But it's ultimately 
the way you become a parent is you are a parent. That's right, yeah. And you meet these random experiences with your kids and you're constantly second-guessing the future. You make mistakes. And through those things, you're incrementally changed That's right. to being, hopefully, a wise parent. Mm, that's so good. All right, I want to I want to keep kind of on this stream of, of hope in the modern age. Um, so one thing that's clearly coming from this conversation is having a long view of things. Um, I, I want to talk about kind of a, a multi-directional approach for the church. I mean, hope in the modern mm-hmm. age of discipleship, of, of, of kingdom obedience, having a long view, but, but I also, I'd love to hear your thoughts on what I just would call like a multi-directional approach, the little things, right? Going to a worship service every yeah. week, but then also like the big things, because, uh, for example, we do a lot of ministry in the you know West Atlanta, a, a more I would say just underprivileged part of our city. Um, we've started a literacy program, trying to teach children how to read. Yeah. Literacy rates in yeah. those children in those schools are pretty yeah. low. But I, I am also concerned with like the decisions that are actually being made at the school board, uh, you know, Atlanta Public School Board meetings, you know, yeah. and so. Yes, we want to have the mom from Buckhead that drives over to Boyd Elementary School and helps yeah. the second grader learn how to read. But I also want to, you know, feel some sense of stewardship over, yeah. like, could we get a godly-minded person elected to the school board that may actually have impact on the curricula? Yeah. How should Christians think about, I, I would yeah. just say, like a multi-directional approach to, yeah. um, to well, culture and to the advance of the gospel? Yeah. I think in terms of public engagement, it's... I'm very, you know, if I was to recommend one thing for people listening to the podcast to read, I would say Augustine's City of God, book 19. Yeah. Augustine's City of God is this, ma- you know, in, it's a grind. in average translation, is about a thousand pages of English. Very few people have got the time to read that. And much of it. And there's deals- so much that, like, you. You can't understand because you don't know what's going on. I mean, yeah, many of the heresies he's dealing with, they may have analogs today, but they've long since vanished in terms of movements. Right, yeah. But in book 19, he's reflecting on how should Christians operate within the world in which they find themselves. And he takes as his cue, you know, Jeremiah's statement, uh, you know, seek the welfare of the city, right. for in its welfare you will find your welfare. And, and what does he do with that? Well, Augustine really says, you know, we live in this world and we share a lot of common loves with pagans. You know, okay, you know, Christians love the Lord, the God, with all their heart and soul and mind. And maybe that's a unique thing to Christians. But we also have a, a, a common interest with the pagans around us in making sure that the streets are clean, streets are safe to walk at night, that kids, uh, vulnerable kids, are protected, right, yeah. uh, that families are supported. You don't have to be a Christian to think that these things are goods. And I, I, I think it is good for Christians to think about, so how can I fulfill my stewardship to the society around me? by being involved in ways that make sure these common goods right. are fulfilled. And you know, and you're saying you know, we, we, we help out with literacy programs. I think we have a common interest with pagans in making sure that kids are well-educated, capable of standing on their own two feet, able to go out, get paying jobs, and pay tax. You know, we have a whole heap of things that we share in common. So I think it's very useful 
and important for Christians to be engaged in the civic sphere. Now, how we do that, I think, we, we've, got to be, we've got to be careful. I think we live at a time of very polarized politics, and the temptation in the world in which we live at the moment is to fight fire with fire. Right. The default rhetoric uh, of the extremes on both sides of the political divide at this point is the rhetoric of warfare and fighting fire with fire. And I am not convinced that that's appropriate for Christians. On a, on a previous episode of Think Through It, your friend and, and, and mine, Colin Hansen, and I talked about, David French wrote this article kind of contrasting Game of Thrones with Lord of the Rings. Yeah. Have you read the article? I have not. But basically, it's what you're talking yeah. about. So, you know, Game of Thrones, you can pursue the good thing, but what it, with whatever means necessary. It could be right. evil means yeah. to get to a good end. But of course, Lord of the Rings, like it, there's purity. You, yeah. you can't achieve the good end in an evil way. No. And I think to me that that was a very just, it was such yeah. a well kind of framed article because I think it's exactly what you're talking about. Yeah, I, I think that we need to be very careful on that front. Now people might say, yeah, but if we, if, 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 if we don't use any means necessary, we will be beaten. Well, the answer to that is the Christian calling is the way of the cross. Now, that's not defeatist, but it is to say that if we do certain things, well, you know, we're going to tread the path that Christ trod. Right, right. We're going to suffer. He could have called down a host of angels to rescue him from the cross. He could have called upon in the desert. He could have called upon a host of angels to come and feed him, but he didn't do it. He suffered as a result. And that's the path that we are called to tread. It's not a defeatist path, though, because particularly in America, we live in a, a great country where we have civil rights, where we have uh, democratic and republican institutions that we can use to achieve the common good. We have the vote. We have the right to public assembly. We have these rights that we can use, and we can use graciously and Christianly in an attempt to make sure that the evil are put down and the innocent and the weak and the vulnerable are protected. But it doesn't mean we use any means necessary to do well, and, so. And, and I think, you know, in a sense, if once we start using any, mean, any means necessary, we already are defeated. I mean, we, yeah. you know, the, the higher good there is obeying our Lord, it, yeah. you know, is being a subject to Jesus. And so the if you, you know, I was talking the other day about having competing goals you know i was golfing with some friends and it was windy and i wanted to hit my shot low uh, to get mm. under the wind but i hit it so poorly it went really low but it like basically just skirted on the ground okay and i said i had a goal but the the bigger goal was hitting my drive far i should have mm. just done my regular shot uh because my secondary goal trumped my primary goal and it was a bad result. And I think that's what we're doing yeah. in these cases. The, the, the primary goal is actually obedience to the yeah. Lord, yeah. not political gain. Yeah. And so if we, if we trump the primary goal with the secondary goal, yeah. then we've already lost. Yeah. And my suspicion is that you go back to the social imaginary idea. There is a faulty social imaginary that is shaping a lot of conservative Christian approaches to politics at the moment. And the faulty social imaginary was this that evangelicalism owned the country. That's how I think a lot of evangelicals felt about the country. Right. Evangelicals, they don't own any country. That's right, yeah. This, this, this world is not our home. 
Now, that's not to say that evangelical Christianity did not have a huge and I think largely beneficial impact on American culture. It did. The danger, though, when you imagine you've owned something and it's taken from you, is to react with anger because you think, you know, nobody likes something being stolen from them. That gets our blood boiling. We need to resist that temptation. These are the times we live in, and we need to think, how does a Christian respond to these times in which we love? It's not by stealing the country back. Right. It's by working graciously, prayerfully, and judicially, judiciously, first and foremost in our local communities where we can have most impact, and secondly, in the larger community where you know most of us can only have an impact at the level of a vote, or in my case, you know, the students I teach may go on to become influential people. We, we can have an influence that way, but we need to be thinking about how to operate, how to shape that imaginary, and the, the imaginary, the social imaginary we can have most impact upon is the local social imaginary. And I mean by that, the people that we actually collide with, rub shoulders with, day by day, week by week. And, and a lot of the way that the Lord works and brings about tr- change and, you know, I think even advances his kingdom, sometimes in the most unexpected ways. I mean, would anyone uh, in the Diocletian era, you know, late, third century have thought you know within 20 years rome will be mostly a christian i mean the i don't think so i mean i think the way that the lord works sometimes is unexpected and strange yeah and we just we're really called to be faithful above all else and i i think in a world you know this is a different conversation in some ways but i think in a world where community is collapsing and being replaced by fake communities, online communities, identitarian communities. Uh, Individual human beings are still going to cry out for real community. Mm -hmm. And that's where the church can play a powerful and strong role because the church, the local church, can be a strong community in a local place. Yes. and this is why, and I've said this numerous times in lectures and interviews I've done over the last couple of years, if the marginalization of the church at the moment is merely seen to be an opportunity to get angry and resentful and maybe despair, it's a wasted opportunity. Right. Because historically what marginalization does is it generates strong communities. Mm-hmm. People on the margins are strong communities. The Muslims... In Spain in the Middle Ages, the Jews in Spain in the Middle Ages, strong communities because they're on the margins. The Quakers in 19th century England, strong community because they're on the margins. Uh, We are having the tools for being a strong community handed to us on a plate Mm -hmm. by the hostile wider culture at this point. It would be foolish of us not to realize what an opportunity that is. And, 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 and once those communities are formed, uh, and, and, and it's interesting to think about, like even just historically, when you, when you have those strong communities and then a different age comes, that can be globally explosive. Uh, you know, one of the things that, you know, obviously as a Baptist, our friend Michael Haken and I have talked a lot about is, you know, you, you look at like what it was like to be a Baptist, um, 
or or really anything outside of uh, you know the Church of England um, in the 17th century. Um, but then you you kind of get to the long 18th century, and all of a sudden there's just an explosion mm. of freedom. And what does that produce? It actually produces like a global missionary movement that impacts yeah. the entire world. Yeah. And so I think like thinking small like that is not unimportant. I mean, I think some people say, well, I, 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 yeah, but a small community, we're, we're trying to change the world here. Well, actually, yeah. that that actually may be the way that you change yeah. the world is having a strong local yeah. community. And that's why we were talking over breakfast earlier about the need for a long-term vision. Right. Uh, we, you know, we as modern people operate in very short-term plans. You know, if you have a five-year plan, that's about as long out. So I think as a church, we know God doesn't operate on days or weeks. He operates over generations. Yeah. Um, and maybe I, you know, you just flag the Baptists, I'll flag the Presbyterians. You know, it should be at the heart of Presbyterianism that God works by his covenant over generations. Mm-hmm. And I think that what we need to recapture is this idea that, you know, if we don't take over the culture for Jesus by the middle of next week, that doesn't mean we failed. It doesn't mean we're weak. It doesn't mean we've been unfaithful. That's right. Uh, what we do is we work at making sure that the gospel is faithfully communicated to the world in which we find ourselves and to the next generation. And the Lord will do with that what the Lord wills. But he's a God who works over hundreds and thousands of years, not a God who works in terms of you know, annual budgets or That's five-year right. plans. Yeah. Um, again, one could summarize that and say, it isn't about us and our generation. It's about a much long-term thing. Now, that's not to say that we shouldn't, again, go back to your question, comment about social responsibility. That's not to say that we shouldn't be deeply concerned about the things that are going on in our day and age, abortion, uh, transgender stuff. That stuff is, we are to speak about that because we have a responsibility to protect children, to protect the That's right, yeah. in our day and generation. But there's a shrewdness but, and an innocence that has yeah. to be present. Yeah. And uh, I mean, I, one of the passages I think about that's interesting is Matthew 25. You know, you, you have the kind of a classic Matthew 25. I was in prison, you visit, yeah. you know, yeah. the, the sheep and the goats. But right preceding that, you have the parable of the talents. Yeah, And so I think that, Jesus is saying something yeah. there. There is this, like, yes, there's this compassion, there's this local uh, empathy, there's um, this local innocence, there's this recognition of seeing Jesus in the most vulnerable that's very, very important. But we also, like, need to be shrewd. <laughs> you know, yeah. if, if you've been given five talents, you, you should go out and figure out how to make yeah. five more. Um, or you're wicked and lazy. And yeah. so there's, there's, both, there's both impulses happening yeah. at the same time. yeah. All right, last thing, and, and this has been awesome. So I, I just, first of all, thank you for coming to Atlanta. Thanks for being here. Um, I'm really excited about, you know, spending more time with you the rest of this weekend. I know that people will be listening to this after you've, you've preached, but um, John Owen. Mm. Why, why should we read John Owen, and where should we start? Yeah, that's a good question. Uh, I, I think we... You know, John Owen, for those not familiar with the name, was probably the greatest of the English Reformed theologians of the 17th century. Uh, a great Puritan, a great representative of what we call Reformed Orthodoxy, which is this sort of Europe-wide movement of consolidating Reformed theology in the generations after the Reformers. Uh, why should we read him? I think he has a profound grasp of the Christian theological tradition 
uh, of exegesis, exposition of scripture, and of theological reflection on scripture. So you name a theological topic, John Owen will have opined on it mm-hmm. and will have done so in dialogue with the great minds of the past that have come from before. So Owen is uh, just an outstanding theologian with tremendous grasp of the theological tradition. Uh, where should we start? I think the traditional place to start with Owen is uh, in his, his work on mortification of sin and on indwelling sin. Uh, it's volume six of the Banner of Truth edition. There's a new edition of Owen's works being published by Crossway, which will presumably produce uh, a new edition of that. And I think you can find already those particular texts separated out into a paperback from Crossway. But read Owen on temptation, mortification of sin, and indwelling sin. He's not easy to read. He's, you know, Owen is as fluent in Latin as he is in English, and that means that his English style tends to be somewhat prolix, long periodic sentences. One of the things I found helpful was a tip I got from reading J.I. Packer on Owen. And Packer, Dr. Packer says, you know, whenever he reads a, a sentence of Owen that he finds hard to understand because of its length, he reads it out loud, and there's a rhythm to the yeah. prose that makes it easier to understand. So start with his work on sin, and then I would say go to his work on the glory of Christ or his work on the Holy Spirit. They're not the easiest of texts, but they're very, you know, when you, they repay careful study because they do have a strong devotional component to them. Well, and, and uh, I, I would say that those uh, those R.K. Law uh, um, little Puritan paperback, yeah. uh, Glory of Christ and yeah. Community of Christ, I mean, those are a lot easier to read. Yeah. I mean, that's that's where I would start. Yeah. That's where I started. And yeah. found Owen to be very, um, even as I would say, as I just tipped my toe into it, very edifying. Yeah. Now, even those, I think you read slowly. But, uh, you know, Justin Taylor put together... Uh, kind of a rewrite of communion with God a few years ago. Yeah. Um, and then obviously you've helped us with Owen. I, I want to give you a plug here. I, I did a couple of books on John Owen in my earlier career. Uh, one looking at his Trinitarian theology and the other one looking at his theology against the background of, of earlier theological uh, ideas. Uh, Another so, little place you can go is a uh, quest for godliness that uh, and it's, it's more than just Owen, but yeah. it's a lot of Owen. Yeah. In the in you mentioned Packer earlier. Yeah, Doctor Packer was a huge influence on my own Christian development. I was converted reading one of his books, and uh, his it was reading Doctor Packer. Actually, I took Knowing God when I was nineteen. A friend and I backpacked. Well, we got we got a bus in London to Athens. It's a long way, and then we spent two months backpacking through Greece and Turkey. And I took Knowing God wow. on that trip. And while I was reading that, I came across this name John Owen. Never heard of him. When I got back to uh, Britain in those days, you couldn't look things up on computers. I went to the local library and I looked books in print. Yeah, the massive book of all the books that are in print, and I found that John Owen, Volume Six that. Dr. Packer had talked about in the Banner edition, was still in print. So I, I ordered uh, John Owen Volume 6 and, and, and read it. So that wow. was how I got into to Dr. Owen. That's so great. Well, I, I'm just so grateful for you even, you know, in those days, you know, when I first encountered your work, this is probably more than 10 years ago now, 
um, and on Owen, and then you know just kind of followed you as a, at a distance, and and just so glad to have you here. And then of course I've just been so helped uh, by your recent works on the modern self, and so. Thank you, Carl Truman. Thank you for this helpful conversation. Uh, For Carl Truman, I'm Jason Dees, encouraging you to think through it. Thanks for listening to Think Through It. For more information, visit ChristCovenant.com.